came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sonia. How are you? I'm good. We're back. Yay. I hope everyone enjoyed the first eight episodes that Darian co-curated. And I mean, the vulnerability episode I loved. I'm sure everybody else enjoyed it as much. Yeah, I hope it it made people maybe reflect on their own uh, usage of of that uh, concept. Maybe expanded your horizon of how you use it. Like that's a, that's an area that I hope we can really push into in the next couple of years, you know, conceptually. Mm. And um, I, for me, it's been really influential just to read more, uh, understand different perspectives on vulnerability. No, for sure. And now I'm really excited about the second part, so to say, of the season. So the next six episodes, I feel like you know we've all been trapped at home for the last year. Like we were not able to travel at all right and i feel like these six episodes uh, will take us around the world and it's great to have the guests from uh, latin america from the caribbean from the philippines uh, it from south africa and i hope everyone's looking forward to hearing those episodes yeah today we are going to be talking about coloniality which is so important in understanding risk isn't it it's part of this overall narrative of uh, disasters as events or disasters as something that's very hazard centric. And if you take that sort of framing, it sort of erases all, all of the very deep rooted causes of disasters. One of those mm. being, um, you know, colonialism and imperialism, right? Mm. And so to get us started today, as we like explore this topic, I wanted to read from Walter Rodney. How Yay. Europe underdeveloped Africa. I know it's so exciting. You're, it's usually you doing reading, Senya, but. It's okay, for once I shall allow you to read. And I love this book, so I'm, I'm willing to listen. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible book. And if anybody hasn't mm. read it, you need to. Um, so in his introductory chapter, Rodney is talking about capitalism and kind of the contradictions within capitalism. And I thought it was uh, maybe a good place to start here. And he says that capitalism has created its own irrationalities, such as a vicious white racism, the tremendous waste associated with advertising, and the irrationality of incredible poverty in the midst of wealth and wastage, even inside the biggest capitalist economy, such as that of the United States of America. Above all, capitalism has intensified its own political contradictions in trying to subjugate nations and continents outside of Europe so that workers and peasants in every part of the globe have become self-conscious and are determined to take their destiny into their own hands. Such a determination is also an integral part of the process of development. Wow. And so I, I just think that's sort of, um, that's sort of what, like what we're grappling with. And when we talk about 
um, the legacy of colonialism and indeed like ongoing neo-colonial practices and processes. It, it does kind of cause people to rise up and rebel and, and oppose it because mm-hmm. it, it, is a, it is an ongoing oppression. Um, and so like in the 20th century, we had so many movements to decolonize and become independent, but capitalism just kind of morphed, right? It just kind of adapted and imperialist countries adapted and changed mm-hmm. strategies. And so it's not as if these issues have, have gone away. They've changed, right? They've absolutely changed. And I think our interview today will explore just that. So some of you may recall that we talked about Puerto Rico with our friend Gemma Sue in season three. It's great that more light has been brought on to Puerto Rico in recent years following Hurricane Maria, but of course we need more conversations that really help us to understand the context. And today we're continuing with this conversation and we've got an amazing guest with us. We're joined today by Dr. Daniel Rivera, who is an assistant professor of environmental design at the University of Colorado Boulder and a director of Just Environments Lab. Daniel's research examines and addresses environmental inequities in majority Latinx communities, uh, in particular Mexican-American and Puerto Rican communities. And we're so delighted to have you on the podcast, Daniel. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for um, inviting me to join you all. Thanks so much for being with us, Danielle. And I want to start off by just asking a little bit about your background. So we know you're an urban designer and an urban planner, and you study community organizing, environmental justice, and social movements. So could you tell us a bit more about your personal journey to that space, and how did you end up focusing on these issues in your research? Yeah, so um, I began my research in um, architecture and um was at the time working with uh, Penn State University. They had gotten um, an NIH grant to study the um, movements of farm workers. And it was an interdisciplinary grant between architecture, social sciences, uh, mainly sociology, and uh, applied math. And um, it was a very interesting study working with such a broad scope of individuals. And our main objective was actually to study health um, in the U.S.-Mexico border region. And we kept hearing uh, stories about these communities known as colonias that would regularly, you know, flood, had all these housing issues, had all these mm. health issues. And so the group had quickly honed in specifically on those communities. Um, they started sort of going off in a different direction, but I was very interested in staying with the colonias. And so um, I pursued a Ph.D. to continue working with uh, that region, with those communities. Um, and that's when I heard about, you know, the repeated flooding, uh, the repeated issues of hurricanes within this coastal region of Texas. It's right along the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. Um, and that sort of just set me off in that direction. Um, I began this work with a um, with an environmental justice framework, so I necessarily wasn't really looking at disaster. Um, but was very uh, intrigued, you know, as an urban designer with sort of the more localized issues that they were experiencing of pollution, of uh, flood risk. Um, 
But then over time, just learning about the interconnectivity between environmental justice and, uh, you know, disasters and climate change as well, and starting to see these as interlinked, um, understanding, you know, they were hit this year by Hurricane Hannah. Uh, in the past, I've studied Hurricane Dolly extensively in that region. And that's really what started getting me into all this work. And eventually, you know, after I graduated with my PhD, I was able to expand my body of research. And um, my family is Puerto Rican. And so I'd always wanted to really look at Puerto Rico and their history of disaster. And so that's when I, you know, as I started at Boulder, that's when I started to bring those concerns in as well. Very cool. Yeah, I, I started off um, studying architecture as well. And my journey into disaster research was very much as a designer kind of trying to figure out how different natural elements impact building components and um, how to design better. And uh, I just got my eyes open really to the social aspect in the field and um, went in a different direction. So. <laughs> It was nice to have a fellow architect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of a cool thing about disaster studies and that it, it really is quite interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, right? And I think many people think that we are mainly geographers, but in fact, there are very mm. few people who are geographers. Um, I'm political scientist by training, you know, and we have lots of engineers and sort of people from all sorts of disciplines. And that's what makes it really exciting. Uh, and challenging sometimes, but, um, you know, <laughs> we'll discuss it in the next episode <laughs> at some point. We discuss this a lot. Um, anyway, I'm really interested about, about uh, in the Just Environments Lab that um, you're the director of. And so on the website of the Just Environments Lab, um, it stated that the mission of the lab is to place justice and equity first um, in all discussions of the future of our environment. Uh, because otherwise the visions of, visions of the future remain uh, systemically unjust. Um, and I, I absolutely agree with that. So for you and for the lab, what does a just and equitable environment mean? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think for us, it means, you know, and I also, you know, not just coming from an architecture background, but I do have um, most of my work nowadays is within uh, urban and regional planning. And so thinking through, you know, what does it mean to actually allow communities to be participants and maybe not just participants, but even drive processes of envisioning a better future. Uh, for me, looking at sort of where we've sort of left off uh, sustainability uh, planning and also climate change planning, um, it's very divorced from uh, highly at-risk communities of color mm. and wanting really to make them an integral part of um, of these visions for how we can actually, you know, create more uh, resilient. Um, I don't like to use that word too much, but <laughs> I'll just throw it out here. <laughs> uh, more resilient communities, perhaps more disaster-resistant communities mm. uh, is a better word. Um, and so I think... For me, it was more about trying to center their visions and seeing that, you know, there's so much research that goes into, you know, how much, um, how many communities of color are very aware of the issues of climate change, uh, the issues of disaster that they're more at risk of, and leveraging that momentum that's within the community to help them actually, you know, find ways to solve the problem. And so I think that's why we center you know, in the lab, we center communities 
across the world, Puerto Rico. We try to center, you know, the colonists I mentioned earlier, those uh, informal communities along the U.S.-Mexican border. We try to center them in the discussion. And so how do you do that? I mean, we've been talking a lot about um, community participation, particularly in season three. Um, and I think, you know, lots of people sort of try to do that, but um, very often unsuccessfully in that it still ends up being sort of quite top down, right? Um, and the community engagement ends up being, we sit around the table for five minutes and that is it, right? And we feel that we, we, kind of, we still do what we think we need to do. Um, so how, how do you engage with communities? What, what is your, I guess, key advice would be? Yeah, I think the difficulty is, especially for disaster scholars, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, is oftentimes they're called to a region because of a disaster. Mm. And I think it's more important, at least from the perspective I come from, you know, the environmental justice, um, to sit with a community and understand the long-term issues that they're facing. And so to me, that's where, you know, all these concerns of not just disasters, but also looking at issues of climate change, issues mm. of environmental injustice come together. Um, I establish myself within the communities that I study and they just, you know, so happen to deal with things over time. Uh, in 2018, you know, the U.S. Mexico border region had to deal with um, with what they were referring to as the great floods. Um, they had a lot of major rainstorms in the summer of 2018. They just were hit by Hurricane Hannah. Puerto Rico was dealing with earthquakes earlier this year um, and a number of you know, tropical storms and hurricanes that had mm. um, passed through the region over the summer. And so I think to me, it's that power to be able to sit with a community mm. that you know is more at risk and understand that you know they will have to deal with issues as they come. But when you sit with a community, you're going to know their history better. You're going to know who are the community leaders, who are the residents, you know, the physical space of the community better. And it's not to say that we don't need that overarching top-down view, but I think disaster scholarship in general needs more of those individuals who stick with a community and you know, can see those long-term issues that develop from repeated disasters. To focus on the injustice and inequality in our society is um, really at the core of disaster risk. And that's kind of why we started the podcast, because mm -hmm. so much of the focus is always on um, the event or even on the hazard. And I, I noticed on your website as well that um, that's something that you were trying to steer away from, you know, that the idea of disaster scholarship focusing on events so the and the problem is when we have that kind of um theoretical approach which is like hazard centric or event centric we that kind of comes out in the ways that we try to reduce risk and unfortunately these um inequalities and injustices are not often addressed through um our efforts to to um, deal with disasters. Um, and so we don't see root causes addressed. So our projects and actions become just band-aids. And I know in season one, I think, Ksenia, we talked to JC about capacities and mm -hmm. like the practical yeah. benefits of enhancing capacities because it's something you can do quickly and, and gives some sort of impact. 
on a community, but hardly ever does our action seem to actually challenge the existing system. And so, Danielle, what do you think we need to do to disrupt the status quo way of doing disaster risk reduction? Yeah, I think, um, it, you know, really it depends on the community because communities can experience such a variety of um, of concerns when it comes to disasters or they're, you know, dealing with different types of risks. Um, I think for the communities I've been examining, um, there are key pieces of FEMA policy that stand in their way of actually having an equitable recovery or mm. reconstruction. And that is the piece that at least initially we've been focused on and trying to sort of on the one hand do that, but also to have a broader sort of um, understanding across the community of the issues that they face and what are those um sort of policy and programmatic stumbling blocks that they experience anytime they try to reconstruct. And so uh, one example of this is we did a uh, report for the Lincoln Institute of um, Land Policy. This was, I think, uh, last year. Um, And in the report, we looked at a legal case. It was one of the uh, community organizations within South Texas after Hurricane Dolly in 2008. They had sued FEMA, Um, you know, happens oftentimes uh, after a disaster. But one of the things that was different about this particular lawsuit was they were really trying to name what they felt like were the specific stumbling blocks in FEMA's policy that made their communities um, less able to receive uh, FEMA funding. And one of those stumbling blocks was, I think a lot of other scholars are starting to um, note this as well, is uh, FEMA's policy of deferred maintenance in the individuals and households program. Um, if you are, you know, in poverty and aren't able to, you know, keep up with repairs on your home, that deferred maintenance policy, which FEMA doesn't define through individuals and households program, but does through their public assistance program, um, they label it as pre-existing damages on a home that they don't want to fund because it wasn't caused by the disaster. Mm. And so what, um, the community organizations were saying through this lawsuit was that their poverty was making them less likely to receive funding because mm. they were more mm. likely to have pre-existing damages on their home. And so I think it's, you know, hearing from the community. And again, this is where I think being deeply embedded within the community is very helpful um, because we're remaining deeply embedded in the community. We had heard about this lawsuit and we looked up the lawsuit, we actually followed it for a number of years. It was almost like a 10-year-long lawsuit. Um, and we could hear what it was that the community was saying about their experience and specifically what was happening, you know, post-disaster, very long-term, um, that, you know, what is it that they're facing still almost 10 years on? Um, and it was this battle over this term that was showing up on all of their rejection notices. So I think kind of answers like two of the questions Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you had posed. But um, for me, it's about, you know, going beyond now and understanding spatially, uh, policy-wise, what are those barriers and actually trying to do something about it. So we're trying to hopefully uh, get FEMA to really think about that deferred maintenance policy. Can they define it, at least define it more clearly? Um, And in that way, then we can understand exactly what are the effects of this policy because right now its definition is like um, differentially imposed on different communities so it's hard to measure 
exactly what its impact is. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's all that. Like thinking about the ways in which risk is accumulated over a long period of time, just underscores how we really need to understand history and understand like historical injustice and not only current policy, right? Because a lot of things are just so deeply embedded and um, injustices that have been committed a long time ago, but we, we feel the echo, right? Um, in the present time. And like, how, how do, in Puerto Rico, how does historic injustices and oppressions echo in the society right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. I think really, you know, it, it comes from a place of first recognizing that Puerto Rico has been a, um, under colonization for over 500 years now, mm. first under the Spanish, now under the U.S., and that that relationship, um, the nature of that relationship has a substantial effect on their ability to uh, recover after a disaster. And that actually that process of trying to recover after a disaster is what helps, I, you know, I think in some ways to inscribe and deepen that colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think to me, it's, you know, really being able to see back in time to understand how perhaps, you know, as you're saying, what we're seeing today, perhaps the effects of Maria and Irma, even though they were a few years ago, we still see their impacts, mm-hmm. um, how that's reminiscent of or sort of built upon those previous hurricanes that we've seen throughout uh, Puerto Rico's history, uh, previous earthquakes, um, previous sort of takeovers, right? Like all of these things sort of start to erode infrastructure, physical space, the policies and um, procedures for dealing with disaster, even you know before the hurricane. So we've already sort of established relationships that will impact the next hurricane. And I think Mm. it's about Mm. how can we disrupt that uh, trend? How can we disrupt that um, ongoing sort of system? This is such a nice segue to my next question. But before I ask it, can I just say that, so your paper, Disaster Colonialism, um, is an absolutely favorite paper of mine this year. Oh. <laughs> I enjoyed reading it so much. So thank you for writing it. And we'll put um, the link to the show notes for those of you who haven't read it. Go read it now. Um, anyway, <laughs> so in your paper, Disaster Colonialism, a commentary on disasters beyond singular event to structural violence, um, you write, and I quote, about the concept of disaster colonialism to recognize continuously poor disaster pre-planning and response as a mechanism of deepening coloniality of being. And the end of quote. Yet we don't often talk about colonialism and coloniality when we discuss disasters. And you know, the, you've kind of opened a very important conversation there, or continued a very important conversation there with this paper. Um, I think. So how should we engage with history in a way that helps us to understand disasters? And also, how do we challenge disaster research and disaster thinking that is still very much colonial and um, imperialist? 
Yeah, and I think it, you know, to answer that question, it's very much at the heart of, I think, you know, what you all are doing here with the podcast, but it's about understanding how disasters aren't one-offs, that mm. we shouldn't be seeing them as one-offs, and that, you know, in terms of our um, in terms of our policy, in terms of our research, we have to understand how different events connect throughout history, um, how their effects may be compounding. I know that's a huge discussion mm. uh, right now in the disaster literature. Um, is you know the compounding effects of disaster, particularly mm. with you know the impacts of climate change and seeing disasters that may intensify and become more frequent, um, or even just seeing you know what happened in the Gulf of Mexico this fall with you know three hurricanes hitting um, hitting Mississippi and Louisiana within a very short time of each other. Um, so these issues, I think, I mean, we see sort of directly how we might have compounding disasters, but understanding that even if events are further apart, that there's still compounding effects between them. And as we're, I think it, it functions on a very base level of understanding that even if we're responding to one disaster, there may be embodied knowledge within that community to help us understand what worked, what didn't work, what was the scope of this disaster versus the last one versus the last one? Like, are we just, for instance, mm. you know, repeating, uh, repeatedly rebuilding in areas that we shouldn't, or we need to better protect certain areas because they're repeatedly, repeatedly um, facing the same kinds of issues. I uh, think of, you know, after Hurricane uh, Harvey hit Houston, there was a story on NPR about how a man had rebuilt his home in the same floodplain of Houston three times. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's like very common knowledge is there are problems with, you know, the flood insurance system um, that allow for that to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think it's connecting these ideas, right? Connecting history to the real experiences of community, to our actual policies and physical space um, and understanding how having that long-term view as we would with almost any other policies and planning we have a longer view of you know what is the history of this community relative to say housing or transportation but starting to do the same i think for for disasters um and in environmental planning as well understanding that the environment for me has a history and understanding that history is really important but hmm. well, i kind of feel that very often disaster risks have been sort of created by um, the colonial rule, right? Um, and in particular by, by, the, by the actions that have completely disregarded um, traditional and you know, indigenous knowledges and skills and by imposing the sort of imperialist, um, very often Western uh, values. And now, uh, I guess we almost like close our eyes, you know, <laughs> when we see the consequences of, of those actions. Um, and though the consequences are not necessarily, um, manifested in, in, in physical, uh, problems, right? But very often in social problems and kind of cultural problems. And yet, um, I don't, I just don't feel we talk enough about this. Um, and I, I wish, I wish we did. Yeah, yeah, I very much agree because when you start to actually connect all of these um, issues, all of these ideas, what you see is at the heart of a lot of these issues is, you know, issues like racism, patriarchy, um, colonization. And I think those are much stickier issues to get at. But I think 
by really talking to comedians about their experience, understanding exactly, you know, what is framing the issues they're experiencing pre, during, and post-disaster. I think that's when you can start to see the mechanisms through which something like racism operates Mm -hmm. through disaster. Um, And I think that's so key sort of um, to look at, you know, not just how associations between, say, race and risk of disaster or gender and risk of disaster, but actually saying how that's working. And I feel like, to me, that's kind of the stage that we're at with our research is just trying to understand Mm -hmm. how, for instance, uh, colonialism actually operates through disaster in Puerto Rico and understanding those mm-hmm. mechanisms, not just looking, say, I think an initial step is say, looking at the Jones Act and how that impacts Puerto Rico's ability to receive aid after a disaster. But we can go even further to look at all kinds of other policies, land use policies uh, and patterns, um, uh, patterns of like funding on other scales. Like I know uh, Centro is a very important uh, Puerto Rican Studies Institute. They've been looking at the spread of uh, schools and education in Puerto Rico against what happened with Maria. Um, so we can even look at that scale, um, understanding how sort of uh, disaster colonialism is affecting access to education, for instance. Um, and so I think there's like multiple scales at with it at which this could start to um to work but it actually you know shouldn't remain for me theoretical but needs to actually mm-hmm. come back and we have to be able to say well what can we do about this i know it's a very sort of steep mountain to climb but um i wouldn't want to leave that um <laughs> and then as you all are saying then we don't really get to the underlying real underlying issues affecting um affecting equitable recovery after disaster. I think for me, like, it's it highlights the need for disaster um, scholars to also have a kind of activist part to their um, work because I, I was talking about this with with in a supervision meeting the other day um, about people that are are displaced for forcibly displaced from a place and how like preventing the displacement really also requires going back to the root causes of why people are displaced. And sometimes mm. that that is wrapped up in imperialism and colonialism and economic relations between countries. And so, you know, say you're, you're a practitioner working on the immediate problem, it's much easier to come up with a, a treatment to, for the symptom rather mm. than start to deal with, you know, all of these um, geopolitical issues, and so I mean, for me, it's it's just such a a strong reason that we all need to be um, broadly involved in changing society and talking about systems of oppression um, mm-hmm. as disaster scholar activists, because otherwise we're just 
going to focus in on like our narrow area of expertise on like treating the symptom of disaster. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, uh, that we have, we have a long way to go in mobilizing as a, as a field, but I think it's a natural fit and it's, it's like essential for us. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd had, I never thought of framing it as, you know, a sort of activism. Um, I think that was just my, you know, training in community development, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and urban planning. But, um, I think, you know, that is, I think one of the things that should, should happen. And to me, it's about, um, an advocacy planning framework where we stand mm-hmm either alongside or right behind the community to try and support yeah. them and having what I see as more of like a facilitator role mm-hmm. in their, um, in their struggle to understand, you know, exactly what their relationship is with disaster and with climate change. Um, and I think that perspective of standing either next to or behind the community, whichever one they need is really important and to never mm-hmm. stand in mm-hmm. front of them. Um, and let their sort of experiences and their knowledge really drive the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've, you've just put it so nicely you know, and summarized it so nicely. And I think in the first episode of this season, Darren and us were talking about solidarity and how solidarity is really important um, in everything that we do and the way we do things. Um, so thank you so much for chatting to us today. This has been fascinating. and. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you all for inviting me. It was a lovely conversation. Thanks, Danielle. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Danielle Rivera, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcasts.